The year was 1108, and the Roman Emperor Alexios I Komnenos was sat inside the imperial tent, waiting for the prince to arrive. When Bohemond, first prince of Antioch, walked inside, the emperor took the Norman's hand in his and sat him next to the imperial throne. Alexios cast his eyes over the prince. Bohemond was a striking figure. Despite a slight hunch to his posture, he towered over the emperor, as he did over most. He possessed a veneer of charm that nevertheless failed to fully mask a savage nature. Even his laugh could sound like a threat. The emperor knew all too well the arrogant and greedy nature of the man before him. As he looked straight into Bohemond's striking blue eyes, his mind flashed with a memory of the first time he'd set eyes on the Norman, on the battlefield, 27 years earlier. In 1081, Alexios had only been emperor for a few months when he'd set out to fend off an invading Norman army working its way through the empire's Balkan provinces. The Normans had already taken some minor holdings on the coast, but Dyrrhachion was the seat of military power in the region, and if the Normans took it, they would have a firm foothold in the Balkans. Their siege of the city had begun some months ago, and though the Normans had brought capable siege engines with them, it had been marred by disaster. The Romans' allies, the Venetians, had used Greek fire to devastate the Norman fleet, and soon, disease had begun to rampage through the camp. The Normans' numbers were dwindling, and they had no easy escape route or way of bringing in reinforcements. It seemed time and patience would remove this threat for Alexios, but unfortunately, he was short on both. The Roman Empire was at its weakest point in centuries, and the young emperor was not only eager to prove himself, but under intense pressure to do so. After decades of coups and usurpations, the Romans had grown accustomed to a revolving door of emperors, and as easily as he'd come to power, Alexios could be removed. It would come as a shock to absolutely no one. So despite the advice of the seasoned generals in his army, who recommended he wait and starve the Normans out, Alexios chose to engage the invaders in open combat. On the morning of October 18th, the Romans and the Normans formed up on the great plains outside Dyrrhachion, near the spot where Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great had once fought for control of the Roman Republic. The once mighty Roman army was a patchwork of badly reduced native soldiers and elite mercenary forces. Of this last group, key were the Varangian Guard, who were traditionally Vikings from Scandinavia and Kiev and Rus. Nowadays, their ranks were replete with Anglo-Saxons, who had been driven out of England by Norman invaders, and were all too eager to get some measure of revenge in the Balkans. Alexios put his Varangian infantry in front. They were on foot, and brandishing enormous two-handed axes, with which he hoped they would cut down the Norman cavalry. Behind them were an array of Frankish and Turkish mercenaries, as well as native forces, drawn from all over the empire. For the last few years, these forces had all been engaged in civil war with each other, Whatever cohesion they had was brittle and ready to snap. And in the rear were the auxiliaries, detached from the rest of the army. These were the Serbian units, led by their king, Konstantin Bodin, and 7,000 Turkmen horse archers, on loan from Suleiman ibn Kutlumush, the Seljuk prince who was the de facto ruler of the former Roman provinces in Anatolia. Though both the Serbians and Suleiman had allied with Alexios, 
Neither was eager to risk their skin for an emperor who was just as likely as not to end up blinded and removed from power in the next few months. So they stood to the rear, waiting to see which way the wind turned before throwing in with Alexios. Across from them, the Normans' forces were no less cosmopolitan. The core were still the Norman knights, skilled heavy cavalry armed with huge lances that they kept tucked under their arm and drove straight through the armor of their enemies. But these elite knights only numbered about a thousand at most, and the mass of the Norman army was composed of a melange of southern Italian Lombards and Greeks, as well as Sicilian Muslims. Eyeing the Norman forces in the early morning sunlight, Alexios might have caught his first glimpse of Bohemond. In 1081, the Norman knight was far from a prince. He was the bastard son of the Lord of Southern Italy, set to inherit nothing, but already willing to do whatever he could to get his hands on some land of his own. He had been placed in charge of the left flank by his father, Robert Giscar of Oatville, Count of Apulia, Calabria, and Sicily. The 64-year-old Giscar was himself leading the center. By his side was his wife, the Lombard noblewoman, Sikilgaita, a fierce warrior in her own right. She had allegedly attempted to poison Bohemond, her stepson, to ensure the inheritance of her own firstborn, and she regularly fought, armed with a spear, beside her husband. Giscar was no less dependent on a victory than Alexios. His forces' morale was low after a long, fruitless siege, and he had had their ships burned the night before, sending a clear message to his troops. Victory or death. It was the Varangians who acted first. They went for the Normans' right flank, which was weaker than the left, and mostly contained a grab bag of lesser-skilled mercenaries. The Anglo-Saxon axes cleaved through the wing, and the right collapsed into a rout. From the left, Bohemond's eyes narrowed as he watched the Anglo-Saxons pursue the fleeing Norman right wing and slowly pull farther and farther away from the main body of the Roman army. He diverted his knights to the right wing, where the Anglo-Saxons were completely exposed, and soon they were swarmed by Bohemond's knights. Sikilgaita also acted quickly. She personally rode towards the fleeing Norman right wing and howled at the cowards. How far will you run? Halt! Be men! Bringing them to their senses and forming them up in a line to meet the Varangians charging forward. The Anglo-Saxons were now isolated from the main army and caught between Sikilgaita's recuperated right-wing forces and the knights swooping in from the left. Surrounded, with nowhere to run, they were mercilessly butchered by the Normans. More than one Anglo-Saxon veteran was probably reminded of the Battle of Hastings, some 15 years earlier, before being run through by a Norman lance. Seeing that Alexius's most powerful units had been destroyed, the Serbians and Suleiman's Turkmen deserted. They were soon joined by the main imperial forces. Before long, only the few stranded remnants of the Varangians remained on the field, and soon, even they fled, holing up in a nearby church, which the Normans set on fire, burning the men inside to crisps. Alexios himself was only barely able to escape without being captured. The newly minted emperor had lost the battle, but he had no intention of losing the war. He, of course, had no idea that in many ways, it was a war he'd be fighting, on and off, for nearly three decades. 27 years later, in 1108, he faked a smile as he looked the Prince of Antioch in the eye and told him to let the past die. 
In the here and now, they could be allies. Even as he saw the specter of Bowman's father in the Norman prince's gaze, the man who'd been at the head of the Norman invasion in 1081, Robert Giscar Votfield, terror of the world. Welcome to History of the Uchimer, episode 1.13, Terror of the World. We're going back to southern Italy today to deal with the ongoing Norman conquest. If you recall, way back from episode 1.2, during the mid-11th century, the Oatville clan, sons of a lesser Norman knight, arrived as mercenaries in the region, and over the course of a few decades, they'd become the most powerful force there defying not only the local Lombard principalities, but the Byzantine Roman Empire, which had once dominated the region, the German Emperor, who controlled most of northern Italy, and the Pope, based out of Rome. The Norman arrival had encouraged the Byzantines and the Pope to form an alliance, but this close contact ironically served to drive a wedge between the two, as their military alliance took a back seat to quarrels over dominion of the Christian Church. In 1054, failed negotiations had spiraled into excommunications all around, an event known today as the Great Schism. This divide had grown even wider when the Pope decided that instead of fighting against the Normans, he could use them to assert his power in Rome and escape the interference of both local Roman aristocracy and the German Emperor. To form an alliance with the leader of the Normans, Robert Giscar the Pope was forced to confirm Robert's right to rule over the land he'd stolen from the Byzantines. He'd also sweetened the pot by confirming the Giscar's sovereignty over the island of Sicily, which was, at the time, still under Muslim control. The failure of the Fatimids in Egypt and their conflict with the island's closest Muslim ally, the Zirids in Afrikia, modern-day Tunisia, had led to a localization of power. And though in episode 2 I used the term emir for the various potentates on the island, the Emirate of Sicily was actually politically divided into Kadits. This term comes from the Arabic word for judge or magistrate, Al-Qadi, which is actually the source for the Spanish word Alcalde, meaning mayor, as in mayor of a city. As that hints at, these were small, relatively weak territories centered around urban areas, and the rival Qadis took any chance they could to stab each other in the back the opportunity was ripe for a Christian reconquest of the island. The Byzantines had actually tried their hand at it some decades prior, though the weakness of the Byzantine emperor at the time had created distrust between him and the leading general, Georgios Maniakis, who had been removed, leading to the collapse of the expedition. Crucially, this endeavor had also included the participation of the two eldest Oatville brothers, Guillaume, Iron Arm of Oatville, and Drogon of Oatville. In 1060, their baby brother Robert returned to Sicily, this time to stay. With the papal confirmation in hand, the Normans only needed the flimsiest of excuses to invade. And in 1060, they got what they were looking for and more. One of the Cadiz on the island, Ibn Althumna, governor of Syracuse and Catania on the western side of the island, had so badly abused his wife Mayumna that she'd fled back to the court of her brother, Ibn Alhawas, governor of Agrigento and Castro Giovanni on the eastern side. This episode of domestic abuse 
eventually led to full-out war between the Ducatis. When it became clear that he was going to lose, Ibn Althumna opted for mutual destruction and sought out the help of the Normans. This is more or less where we left off back in episode 1.2. What I didn't mention then was that Ibn Althumna didn't go to the senior Norman, the Giscar, for aid. He went to a younger Oatville brother, the last of Tancred's sons to come to Italy, Roger. Now, the relationship between Robert and Roger was complicated. For starters, they had different temperaments, where Robert was aloof and detached, his younger brother by about 15 years was much more lighthearted and friendly. However, they both shared the most persistent Oatville trait, undying ambition, and this had led to some conflict between them. Eventually, the conquest of Sicily would fall primarily to Roger, which suited both brothers just fine. It kept them out of each other's hair, basically. This actually led to a bit of a divide between Sicily and southern Italy, foreshadowing their eventual fate as the modern era's Kingdom of Two Sicilies. The Norman seizure of Muslim Sicily was one part of ongoing Latin Christian assaults on Muslim territory. See also, for example, the pirate raids of the Italian merchant republics, who we visited in episode 1.9. I think I mentioned then that the Pisans even tried to team up with the Normans to attack Palermo, but Roger refused. Probably in part because it just didn't fit into his overall plans to attack Palermo at that time, and also possibly because he didn't want to deal with the Pisans, who had their own objectives. Roger already had his mind set on constructing a stable state, and the decades-long conquest of Sicily laid the groundwork for what, in 1130, eventually became the Kingdom of Sicily under Roger's son, Roger II of Oatville, first King of Sicily, who throughout the 12th century would not only consolidate Sicily, southern Italy, and even the region of Africia into one realm, but would blend Arabic and Byzantine infrastructure to create probably the most politically advanced state in all of Western Europe. Back in the 11th century, though, Norman control was much looser all around. They had a much less defined concept of statecraft. And though Roger showed some vision, his big brother Robert was not at all interested in nerdy topics like taxation. Historian Chris Wickham describes the Norman conquest like this. It is often linked to the Norman conquest of England, but in fact was its opposite. The English conquest was an organized military operation by the Norman Duke and his army hanging on a single battle and complete in under five years. That in Italy was the work of a set of soldiers of fortune from the lesser Norman nobility and took two generations of casual violence to achieve. The Normans made little attempt at state building here, as of yet. It is indeed hard to avoid the impression that most of the time they were simply having fun. They had a reputation for oppression and imaginative brutality, which they strove to live up to. People surrendered more easily. And doing it in the sun of southern Italy was also probably more fun than doing it in Oatville, one of Normandy's more miserable villages. So yeah, the violence is actually a key aspect. Norman rule, particularly at the beginning, was likely the worst experience the residents of southern Italy and Sicily could imagine. For example, Roger once wrote letters to the residents of Palermo in the blood of the soldiers who had been defending the city in an attempt to convince them to surrender to his siege. The Normans were famous, or infamous rather, for destruction of property, rape, torture, and wanton murder wherever they went. And not only will we be dealing with the consequences of these actions later on, but these practices will also inform the behavior of the Italian-Norman contingents of the First Crusade, led by Bohemond of Oakville, Robert Giscard's firstborn, who had been born Mark, but was soon given the nickname Bohemond 
after a legendary giant on account of his height and brawny muscles. Now, Bowman's nickname was likely something like Vimonts in the Norman dialect of Old French, and this is a good point to mention that I'm not being incredibly consistent in French or Norman names. Some I pronounced in an anglicized form of modern French, such as Giscard, which was more likely Viscart in Old French. Some in a full-on anglicized form, like Robert and Roger, which are Robert and Roger in modern French, and would have been more like Robert and Roger in Old French. We will eventually talk about some of these differences, because the Outremer states will primarily use Old French, but also other Romance languages. For Beaumont's name, by the way, I'm going for an anglicized form of the modern French, which is Bohemond. Anyway, Bohemond was a bastard. Uh, that's not a judgment on his character or anything like that, though more than one person who had to deal with him would probably describe him that way. That's not what I mean. What I'm saying is that he was literally a bastard, but he wasn't born a bastard. He became a bastard when his father's first marriage was annulled. Giscar had had this marriage annulled so he could marry Sigilgaita, a Lombard noblewoman who, as we heard in the opening, fought by his side. As I mentioned, Sigilgaita actually tried to kill Bohemon once to ensure the inheritance of her son with Robert, Bohemon's younger brother, Roger, usually called Roger Borsa, to distinguish him from his uncle Roger and his cousin, Roger II. He picked up the nickname Borsa, or bag in Italian, from a habit he had of fiddling with his purse and the coins inside. The half-Norman, half-Lombard, Roger Borsa, would end up being his father's main inheritor, and become Duke of Apulia and Calabria after the Giscard's death, leaving Bohemond with nearly nothing. This dissatisfaction with his position in southern Italy would motivate him to head out on the First Crusade, eager to get his hands on a proper prize. He would succeed. Bohemond will eventually become Prince of Antioch. He's the first Uchimer ruler we've met, so we'll be following his career with some interest. Back in 1080, though, the First Crusade was still just a pipe dream, and the Giscar may have felt a bit bad about cutting Bohemond out of his inheritance. Bohemond had always been a loyal son and a useful military asset. After all, the guy was built like a brick shithouse, and he was clever as a whip, not only on the battlefield, but politically as well which we'll have a few opportunities to witness firsthand in the future. The desire to do right by his firstborn son may have been what motivated Robert to look elsewhere for a piece of land he could offer to him. See, the thing was that in southern Italy, he needed Sigilgaita support. She was from the Lombard nobility, and it was his alliance with her that made his rule possible. There was no way he could threaten that relationship. Outside of Italy, though, this Lombard connection mattered less so the Giscar's eye soon settled on Byzantium. As we discussed last time, Mikhail Lucas had made a marriage alliance with Robert. His son, Constantinos, the heir to the throne, would marry Robert's daughter Olympia. Olympia had been sent to Constantinople, where she was given the new name of Elena. This marriage alliance was actually a bit of an olive branch, as the emperor had been tangentially involved in a plan to remove Robert a few years prior. See, following Manzikert, Constantinople had written to the Pope for aid, Specifically, they wanted the aid of Latin Christendom to retake Anatolia. Sound familiar? It should. This is basically the First Crusade, but 20 years earlier. Pope Gregory VII was quite keen on the idea. He started to make the preparations for an expedition to the east, but he had a bit of a side project going on. He was also hoping to use this army to put down his former allies, the Normans. Following Pope Nicholas II's alliance with the Normans, his successors uh, were less enthusiastic and more suspicious of the Giscard. Robert, for his part, had not exactly been playing the part of loyal vassal. 
His cousins continued to raid papal lands, and his ambition was clearly unchecked. Since being elected as pope in 1073, and even before, Gregory had made several efforts at controlling his supposed ally. Now, he saw the arrangement with the Byzantine emperor as a possible solution for his Norman problem as well. He could march his little army down through southern Italy and show Robert who was boss. The pitch was pretty clear. He wrote to his allies, quote, We also hope that out of this will arise the possibility of another advantage. For, once the Normans are constrained to make peace, we can pass on to Constantinople to aid the Christians who are continually afflicted by the attacks of the Saracens. End quote. This proposal was a hit. Gregory was able to draw troops from throughout Italy, making alliances with not only the Lombard rulers of southern Italy, but also Pisa, Tuscany, and even Burgundy, in what is now France. Pope Gregory also made use of a weapon he'd grow quite fond of during his reign, excommunication. He had Robert of Oatville excommunicated. We'll be discussing the papal reform movement, which actually draws its name from Pope Gregory, the Gregorian reforms, later on. For now, some key aspects to take away from this little proto-crusade are the use of excommunication, the alliances with local lords to build a composite papal army, and the use of Eastern Christians as a bit of a carrot. The Pope could always use the suffering of Christians in Anatolia and the Levant as a motivational tool. Nevertheless, the time was not yet right in 1074 when the papal army began to gather in northern Italy and the entire expedition collapsed when the Pisans, who were supposed to be supplying the naval support, pulled out after refusing to work with the Lombard ruler of Salerno, who'd engaged in piracy against their ships for years. The army never made it south, and definitely never made it to Constantinople. It would be some years before the Pope had success in sending an army east. Robert was still sufficiently spooked enough to try his best to make amends with the Pope. He at the very least wanted to get the excommunication lifted and eventually the Pope was forced to accept this renewed alliance, as he had bigger problems to the north. Gregory was getting sucked into a crisis that would reshape the church and play a large role in creating what we think of as the Catholic Church, the Investiture Controversy. We will have to talk about the Investiture Controversy in more detail later on, but for now, we only need to know that it involved a conflict between the German king and the Pope. The crux of the affair was over who had the right to appoint or invest church officials, whether it was the secular ruler of a territory or the pope. Traditionally, it had been up to the secular ruler, but a huge part of papal reform was the separation of the church from the state, a bit backwards from the way we usually think about the separation of church and state. This was an initiative coming from the church, who were trying to create an institution free from secular interference. Unsurprisingly, the German king, Henry IV, was not happy when the Pope tried to institute papal investiture in Germany. The sale of church offices was a good income, and he wasn't going to cut that source of revenue off just because some rando in Rome thought it was immoral. So not only did he not stop selling church offices, but he withdrew his support for the Pope and called for him to be deposed, even referring to Gregory by his pre-papal name, Hildebrand. In return, the Pope refused to crown Henry as Emperor of the Romans, Hence why we're going to keep calling him King Henry IV, and not Emperor. Not just yet. As the crisis developed, Pope Gregory began to realize he couldn't fight on two fronts, and so a rapprochement with Robert started to gain an appeal. In June of 1080, he finally lifted Robert's excommunication, and the two men, Norman warlord and reformist pope, formed an alliance. A tenuous alliance that was still wounded from years of conflict, but an alliance nonetheless. Historian Gordon S. Brown puts it like this, quote, 
Over a quarter century, three popes, reluctantly, had come to the same conclusion, that it would be better to recognize and try to guide the growing Norman power in the south of Italy than to see it directed against their interests. Leo in 1053, Nicholas in 1059, and now Gregory in 1080, had each been obliged by the force of circumstances to confirm the Normans as vassals in the territories they had conquered. Each time, the extent of those territories had increased, as had the need of the papacy for Norman military help. End quote. Robert, for his part, wasn't only religiously motivated in maintaining alliance with the Pope against the German king. The Pope was a useful ally, useful enough that he'd actually turned down an offer from Henry to ally with him against the Pope. Robert didn't want a powerful German emperor any more than the Pope did. That would threaten his own position in southern Italy. So helping Gregory was as much motivated by religious zeal as it was by pragmatic realpolitik. There were even rumors that Gregory planned to crown the Giscar, not Henry, as Holy Roman Emperor. Though it's unlikely the Norman would have gone along with this, as it would have sucked him directly into northern European politics, and the Giscar was much more focused on the wealth of the East. His realm was mostly built out of the Byzantine-Roman infrastructure in southern Italy, and the Normans in general had come to admire the court culture emanating from Constantinople. Robert did his best to emulate the Greek emperor, not the German one. For example, his coins were copies of Byzantine currency, with Giscar proclaimed as Duke Simperator in the Roman tradition. And of course, he had worked hard to angle an engagement between his daughter and Michael Lucas' son. And so it was that in 1080, Robert began to make plans to fully bring the Eastern Roman Empire under his thumb. As we talked about last time, Michael Lucas had been deposed in 1078 and replaced with Nikiforos Votaniatis, who had dissolved the marriage alliance and sent Robert's daughter off to a convent. Robert was thrilled. This was just the pretext he needed. The marriage alliance had always been a long shot, and either way, his daughter was growing up in Constantinople and would almost certainly be more of an ally to the Byzantines than to the Giscar. But now, he had justification for his own invasion, the restoration of Mikhail Lucas to the throne, and his future son-in-law, Constantinos Lucas, as heir to the throne. This plan took a wackier turn when a fella showed up in Italy claiming to be Mikhail Lucas. Now, this was definitely not the real Mikhail Lucas. It's not clear who exactly it was, but uh, Robert kept the facade up and even had his recent ally, the Pope, recognize the imposter as emperor and bless the expedition to put him back on his throne. If successful, this undertaking would have solved quite a few problems for the Giscar, not least of which was increasing his legitimacy in the Byzantine political sphere which would tighten his hold over the Byzantine Romans in southern Italy and Sicily, and would also provide him with a chance to give his firstborn son, Bohemond, a proper inheritance that couldn't be contested by his Lombard wife. It was also a huge gamble. Though the Romans were only a shadow of their former selves in 1080, they were still a force to be reckoned with. There were reasons the Roman Empire had survived for a millennia. We have a saying in Spanish, Masal diablo por viejo que por diablo. The devil knows more on account of his age than on account of his being the devil. Accordingly, Robert put together a truly formidable army. This wasn't the Norman army of decades past, uh, just a bunch of Norman knights and their horses. Though that was still the core of their might, he also hired large numbers of local mercenaries, Lombards and Greeks as well as Muslims. He also made sure he had at his disposal top-of-the-line siege engines as well as the skilled experts to man them. These ain't your daddy's Vikings. 
At the end of the day, his army numbered about a thousand Norman knights, supported by 20,000 miscellaneous infantry, as well as siege engines and other auxiliaries. The naval contingent consisted of about 150 ships requisitioned from his coastal properties, like the newly conquered Amalfi, as well as loans from the mercantile city-state of Ragusa. Robert was 64 years old, but still an imposing figure. He still led his armies personally into combat. His second-in-command was Beaumont, who was fast developing into a skilled commander himself, and by his side was Sikilgaita, his Valkyrie wife. Just as the army was about to set sail, news came from the east. Votaniatis had been deposed, and Alexios Komnenos now sat on the throne. Komnenos quickly made it known that he was open to a resolution that was satisfactory to both parties. He was an ally of the Dukas clan, and was apparently planning to restore Constantinos as co-ruler. He might even be convinced to honor the marriage between him and the Giscar's daughter. Robert was livid. This was not what he'd wanted at all. He'd already put way too much into this invasion, and nothing was going to stop him. In April, just days after Alexios captured Constantinople, the advance guard under Bohemond crossed over to the Balkans and took the port of Valona. The main force joined them there in May. The Giscar was digging his fingernails into the Balkans. However, Alexios I Komnenos was not his weak-willed predecessors. He was not only a skilled commander, but he had grown up during the empire's most volatile era, and he was used to making do with nothing. Though he was young, he had lived on campaign since his teenage years. He was also a savvy political operator. He quickly set up some key alliances. As I mentioned in the opening, he negotiated aid from the Serbian king and Suleiman ibn Kutlimush, the unofficial Sultan of Rum. Alexios also made contact with the Venetians. The Venetians had one of the most powerful naval forces around, and if they could be induced to take the Roman side in the conflict, the Normans would find supporting their position in the Balkans that much harder. To bring the Doge around, Alexios was forced to make quite a concession. He gave the Venetians an unprecedented deal, tax-free trade in all the empire's ports. This was monumentous. It basically rewrote the game for the Venetians and would dramatically alter trade relations for years to come. From now on, the Venetians would slowly become the dominant trading power in the Mediterranean, and this unfettered access to the rich Roman markets only spurred that development. With his alliances cemented, the freshman emperor began to make plans for the battlefield. Alexios was not going to go down without a fight. Though Robert saw some early victories, he paid dearly for every inch he gained. Constantinople was a long way away, and even though they won the battle outside Dyrrhachium, as we saw in the opening, losses had been great on both sides, and the siege carried on for months after the battle, sapping Norman numbers and initiative. The Greeks also had a much more well-defined political apparatus than Robert. Alexios was not only fighting Robert on the battlefield, but in the court of the German king, in the streets of Rome, and in the private chambers of Robert's supposedly loyal vassals. For example, Alexios sent Henry IV 360,000 gold pieces to induce him to attack Giscard's ally, Pope Gregory. And silver undoubtedly also flowed to Robert's vassals in Italy. In the words of seminal political theorist Ariana Grande, whoever said money can't solve your problems must have not had enough money to solve them. Alexios's plan worked. Robert was soon forced to return to Italy, not only to put down revolts in his own lands, but to head off a looming invasion by the German king, who, Byzantine bribery aside, was also hoping to depose Pope Gregory and finally get himself crowned emperor 
by a more pliable papal successor. With Robert otherwise engaged in Italy, Bohemond took charge of the forces in the Balkans, and things kind of fell apart. Bohemond was not his father, and despite those early victories, the Norman expedition was soon suffering from serious morale issues. To be fair to Bohemond, it was always going to be a challenge to keep such a varied army deep in enemy territory, not only well supplied, but happy. And as I mentioned, Alexios was no pushover. He was about 33 at the time, only 5 years older than Bohemond, who was around 28. And the two show a similar sort of impetuous youthfulness in their strategies. A sort of daring that often paid off, but just as often put him in perilous positions. Nevertheless, Alexios had the home turf advantage, and he was soon wearing Bohemond down. After a stinging defeat in the spring of 1083, it became clear that the invasion would fail if Robert didn't return to the Balkans with the relief force as soon as possible. However, Robert was forced to choose between his ambitious invasion and his fealty to the Pope when the German king finally made good on his threats to invade Rome. King Henry IV was able to take the Eternal City after the Roman aristocracy betrayed Gregory and opened the gates to the German. On Easter Day, 1084, after having installed his anti-pope in the Lateran, he was crowned Emperor of the Romans. The now deposed, or uh, depoped, Gregory was holed up in a nearby fortress, the Castel Sant'Angelo, and he had just one hope left, his Norman ally, the Giscar. It must have pained Robert dearly, but he chose his oath over the tantalizing opportunity in the east. He amassed the largest force he could muster and marched on Rome. The newly crowned German emperor did not have nearly as large an army with him, and so he fled, leaving the Romans to their fate. Their fate was truly gruesome. Robert took the city back and made sure his ally, the newly reinstated Pope Gregory, was recognized as such. But his forces wreaked havoc throughout the city. The Romans soon had a taste of what all the stories of Norman violence attested to. The army, of course, contained many Muslim and Greek forces from Sicily and former Byzantine properties, and perhaps because of the large amount of non-Catholics, the capture of the city was particularly cruel and shocking. The frenzy of rape and murder soon instigated resistance on the part of the locals, and guerrilla warfare consumed the city. Entire neighborhoods were burned to the ground, and every building was stripped of its valuables. The city had not seen destruction and bloodshed of this kind for centuries, and Pope Gregory did little to halt the brutal sack of the city which had betrayed him to Henry. However, he would soon come to regret his inaction. After the pillaging of Rome, Gregory was forced to take up residence in the Norman-controlled city of Salerno, where he would die just a year later, in 1085, and where his body still remains. The writing on his sarcophagus quotes his last words. I have loved justice and hated iniquity. Therefore, I die in exile. A bit passive-aggressive. Maybe it's all the murder and rape, Gregory? Maybe that's why you're dying in exile? Anyway, the anti-pope created by Henry, Clement III, would return to reign in Rome, and when Pope Urban II calls the First Crusade, the quote-unquote true papacy will still be acting mostly in exile, struggling to establish itself in Rome. But we'll get there in due time. After settling the Pope in Salerno, Robert refocused on his invasion of the Roman Empire, which was not going well. All their early gains had come to naught, and they'd even lost Dorachium their hard-won foothold, thanks to the intervention of Venetian naval supremacy. The political angle had also fallen to tatters. Alexios was now firmly established in Constantinople, 
And though Robert might have been able to find some local support in removing Votaniatis, Alexios had done a much better job at strengthening alliances internally. The Romans were beginning to heal from the wounds of civil war and reconsolidating into a unified political bloc. Things were made even worse when an epidemic of typhoid fever ravaged the Norman stronghold on the island of Corfu and depleted the dwindling numbers of Robert's once impressive army. And then, on July 17th, 1085, Robert, the Giscar of Oatville, himself fell victim to the disease. He was about 70 years old. It's really difficult to sum up his life. For many of these historical figures, it's hard to balance the moral judgment that's impossible to avoid when you hear of how much suffering they caused in the lives of others with the admiration at what many of them accomplished. For me, the Giscar embodies this feeling. Imagine centuries from now some historian waxing poetic about some particularly charismatic ISIS leader. Robert's tactics were just as deplorable. And this is not a case of present eyes looking on past events. Uh, even in his own time, his name was cursed for the extreme violence he used to satiate his undying ambition. But that ambition is still palpable nearly a millennia later. There was no reason to expect that this son of a lesser knight would become one of the most powerful forces in the Mediterranean world, a figure who even emperors fled from. That's something. The epitaph on his tombstone, which has since been destroyed, once read, Here lies the Giscar, terror of the world. By his hand, he whom the Germans, the Ligurians, and even Rome itself called king, was driven from the city. From his wrath, neither the Parthians nor the Arabs nor even the forces of Macedon could save Alexius, whose only hope lay in flight, while for Venice, neither flight nor the protection of the ocean was of any avail. We will leave the Normans in mourning for now, though Bohemond, who was, at the time of his father's death, himself recovering from a bout of typhoid in Bari, will definitely be coming back. For now, though, our attention will turn east. With the book closed on the Norman threat, Alexios I Gomninos could finally begin to focus on not just survival, but renewal. The emperor did not settle down for a life of comfortable rule in Constantinople. No siree, he remained on campaign, ensuring the stability of the empire's European holdings. In roundabouts the early 1090s, he started to get the feeling that the time might be right to make a play at recuperating some of the empire's lost territory in Asia. This sentiment was likely connected to the all-consuming civil war raging in what had once been the Great Seljuk Empire. In 1092, the Seljuks lost in quick succession. First, their capable vizier, the Order of the Realm, Nizam al-Mulk, and then their Sultan, Malik Shah. The empire was thrown into civil war, and the powerful forces that had been brewing under the reign of Malik Shah began to make plays at independence. It was under these conditions that the Crusaders would find such success in the East. But to understand these forces, we'll have to understand the nature of what Malik Shah's death unleashed. So next time, we're going to Persia to witness the rise and fall of the King of Kings. <laughs>